morning, Twitter. I'm David Mack. She is Stephanie McNeil, and you are stuck with us today on AM to DM. Yeah, sorry. I know you were hoping to see Isaac and Saeed no. here to start off your Monday morning. No, you have us. <laughs> uh, we are worthy replacements, I will say. They are vacationing uh, in the West Coast, right? They're doing something that I don't, I had never heard of before. Maybe someone out there watching has heard. It's called a uh, employer-sponsored vacation. It's where <laughs> your employer pays for you to go on vacation. We're not jealous at all. Uh, yeah. I guess that's something that happens here at BuzzFeed. Never happened to me. They're, okay, we should, they, <laughs> they are doing, this is work, they're doing work for AM to DM on the West Coast. There's gonna be some fun content co for you guys coming up uh, in the months ahead. We have a little bit of a green monster. But yeah, we're just like, the ones who have to pick up the slack. Yeah, so. I mean, we got to get up at 7 a.m. So it's basically the same for us. Get up at 7. We were here at 7. That's true, yeah, that's so. true. I got up way earlier than okay. that. Yeah. That's okay, true. so you guys know I love to talk about wedding season, all the drama yes. that comes with we it. Love weddings. It's my favorite topic. Love them. So we have to talk about this look that Kim Kardashian wore to Two Changes yes. Wedding over the weekend. As our producer Mary Wilson tweeted, Keisha Ward is a champ because anyone showing up to my wedding like Kim Kardashian did in this neon leather. Ooh. <laughs> dress is going to be politely asked to leave. The fuck? Okay, so Steph, you are a professional wedding guest. It That's feels like true. every weekend on your Instagram you are at some kind of wedding or wedding-related event. Follow right. if you want to see some wedding content. Uh, to walk me through the faux pas here, what did she do wrong? See, I actually do not have a huge problem with Kim wearing this outfit. I get it. She, like, definitely is doing the most. Yeah. She's wearing this neon green. Kim Kardashian doing the yeah, most? Yeah, like, her boobs are out. Like, it's pleather. I mean, maybe it's real leather. I don't know. I didn't know they made I think we can assume Kim Kardashian is wearing leather and not pleather, sure. True. But, I mean, if you're going to invite Kim and Kanye to your wedding, and they had their wedding at the Versace Mansion in right. Florida, you kind of, like... If I invited Kim Kardashian to my wedding, I would expect she would show up in a wedding dress and like, that's what I'm gonna do because I want press coverage of my wedding. I want people to tweet about my fair wedding. Fair enough, fair like, enough. Like now their wedding's in the news, they're gonna get all these like eyeballs. Like, I mean, if you don't want someone works. to take, if you don't want Kim to take like extension away from you, don't invite her to your wedding. Well, she did essentially. I, I, I know that I might be in the minority She there. did essentially wear a giant green screen to this wedding, but we need to talk about the real fashion faux pas from my point of view, which was Kanye's shoes, these slippers that he had on, on socks, by the way, <laughs> with a nice little, suit, little shoes. but these teeny tiny little slippers. <laughs> it makes you laugh so hard. It looked, <laughs> I don't know, like he just like found them at the hotel in the cupboard and like put them on. Uh, anyway, here's some delightful uh, commentary from Scottish Twitter or Scottish Twitter, Do it, as I should say. Kanye went to a wedding looking like your dad taking the bins out in your mall slippers. <laughs> Apologies to Kelly McDonald there for that Scottish accent. Uh, yeah, I mean, that you get the point, right? He looked like he just sort of thrown these on at the last minute, which I, you know, is a mood, but perhaps not appropriate wedding attire. I think the saddest thing in the world is that those slippers probably cost like more than one of yes. my paychecks. Yes, I think that's true. Okay guys, so thinking of this, we gotta ask, what's the worst outfit you've ever seen at a wedding? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. You must have some good stories. I do. So I have been to an array of weddings, you know, very simple, more backyardy weddings, you know, very fancy weddings. There is always, no matter what, one clown in cargo shorts at a wedding. Cargo shorts. Always. Okay. I'm thinking of men too. I've been to wedding, a wedding with, you know, men are in suits and the women are in nice dresses. And there's a guy there in a short sleeve collared shirt and some like red pants and some flip flops. You know, sometimes I've seen men do this kind of look where they are wearing shorts, but they'll have like suspenders and hat on. You know what? I, I, okay, fine. If that's what you want to do, go ahead. But cargo shorts. I just, it, it, I just can't imagine waking up and going to a wedding and putting on cargo shorts. Very serious faux pas out there. So please do let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. But we want to start uh, this morning with a tweet from the New York Times from last night. In the months that followed her revelations about Harvey Weinstein, Asia Argento arranged to pay $380,000 to her own accuser, Jimmy Bennett, a young actor and musician who said she had sexually assaulted him years earlier. The allegations, allegations against Argento have been causing shockwaves on Twitter this morning. Rose McGowan tweeted, I got to know Asia Argento 10 months ago. Our commonality is the shared pain of being assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. 
My heart is broken. I will continue my work on behalf of victims everywhere. Now, many people are expressing concern that the story could damage the Me Too movement, but as Tarana Burke tweeted, people will use these recent news stories to try and discredit this movement. Don't let that happen. This is what the movement is about. It's not a spectator sport, it is people generated. We get to say this is or isn't what this movement is about. I think that's a good point. The Me Too movement the whole point of the movement is mm -hmm. it is not about one person, mm -hmm. right? Me too means there's a collection of women everywhere, thousands and thousands of women mm -hmm. who are speaking out against an array of things. It's yep. not just Harvey Weinstein. It's not just one man or one woman. It's a ton of people. So I have been seeing on Twitter this morning already a lot of people saying, oh, this discredits the whole movement. Um, but obviously that's not true. So I think we need to take that narrative Very out true, it. very true. I will say, but I, it's important to remember also that the, as we've seen with things like the Kevin Spacey story as well, that the Me Too movement is about uh, men as well and victims of sexual abuse too. And I feel like in, in a story like this, it's a powerful reminder as well that I think our society, we tend in certain times to laugh off or shrug off instances involving younger men and older women as well. There's a kind of horrific double standard there with our society sometimes. Uh, and a story like this, or allegations like this, we should say, because uh, it's not our own reporting, but uh, are an important reminder, I think, to listen to Me Too victims everywhere, uh, no matter who they are as well, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely keep an eye on it. And yeah, see the story's not going away, so we'll be following it in the days ahead. Yeah, for sure. Well, Forrest Wilder, editor of the Texas Observer magazine, you tweeted, this is one of the best Beto O'Rourke profiles I've read, especially by someone who doesn't live in Texas. It's not a hagiography, but captures the excitement of the campaign while many of the nuances of the Texas right. Yes, our very own Anne Helen Peterson has written an amazing profile of the Democratic candidate taking on Ted Cruz for the Texas Senate seat in November. Democrats have been hoping to turn Texas blue for a generation and supporters of Beto O'Rourke believe he is the man to make it happen. And Helen joins us now to discuss whether he stands a chance. And Helen, good morning. Good morning. So I read your profile this morning. I loved it. It was so good. So for those outside of Texas, like myself, who may just be learning about Beto, who is he? And why did you open your piece with a line about how much he sweats? I mean, it's <laughs> Texas. Everyone sweats. Who goes there? <laughs> uh, well, Beto O'Rourke is running for the Senate seat from Texas, currently held by Ted Cruz, who most people know who Cruz is. You know, this is part of what makes it such a higher profile race is because of Cruz's run for president in 2016, um, they just, they, people have opinions about Ted Cruz. And Beto has um, attracted a volunteer force of over 10,000 people. He's raised 20 million to not as much from Cruz. Um, and recently the, the latest polling, and polling is you know famously unreliable, but the latest polling puts him about two points behind, which is a phenomenal feat for Texas. It's a very close race, and I want to quote a line from your piece. If O'Rourke were running against a more beloved or even likable GOP incumbent, the race would not be as close as it is. But he's not running against a likable conservative, he's running against Ted Cruz. So we know uh, Ted Cruz, as you said, has a kind of national reputation among some circles, but what's his reputation like in Texas? You know, the people that I talked to in Texas and a lot of the people that I talked to were conservatives um, who maybe don't necessarily identify with the GOP anymore or who certainly don't identify with Ted Cruz or with Donald Trump. And I think that their reaction to him right now is that he's so far to the right. You know, he's a Tea Party conservative that he hasn't done anything in Congress. He's only, you know, obfuscated the problem um, and that he also is kind of out for himself that he is running a race for president instead of a race for Senate. And, you know, regardless of, you know, we don't know that that's the opinions that people sure. uh, to me. <laughs> that's how I'm going to say it. Very true. You talked a lot, lot about the different people who were coming out to support Beto. And one shocking thing for me was that Texas is 47th of the nation in voter turnout. And one of the big things that the campaign is trying to do is get a lot of people out to vote because they believe if, you know, all more people came out to vote, the Democrats could actually win in Texas. So why do you think that is true in Texas? And do you think that there could be this big change in November? 
You know, Texas is one of those states where the electorate, right, not the electorate, so the, the population, if you just polled people and were like, would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat? The population is Democrat, but the electorate, the people who actually vote is Republican. And, you know, there's many reasons why that might be. You know, part of it is the Democrat. Oh, we just uh, hey, I think we lost. You know, it's it's hard to get all the way out to the West Coast. To but. <laughs> I think it's calling from Montana today, but she has spent the last month in so in Texas traveling around. Uh, we're working to get her back while we do that. But yeah, I feel like the amazing thing to me was that, uh, you know, they've been working, as we said before, to try to get uh, Texas to turn blue mm -hmm. uh, for a while. And ho they're hoping that this guy is going to be the guy to do it. And I'm wondering specifically what makes him the guy to do it. And Helen, there looks like is. we have you back. <laughs> Hi, welcome back. Uh, could you talk to us about... Uh, how the campaign is trying to reach out to uh, minority communities. We know he speaks fluent Spanish, but it's not just as simple as speaking Spanish, is it? No, you have to get people who actually live in those communities to do the outreach, right? So there are people who have been, you know, who know which doors to knock, where you can put signs legally, you know, all of those things. They've been doing this sort of outreach for a long time. So the campaign both needs to energize new volunteers, but then also connect with those people who have created the infrastructure of the Democratic Party in Texas. Another really interesting component of your piece is that Beto is from a border town, El Paso, Texas, and he's trying to appeal to a lot of people in border towns, but there's kind of a balance right now because the Democratic line is very anti-ICE, very, like, that is their line on border security, but a lot of people in border towns work for the Border Patrol, so you can't come out as someone trying to appeal people in border towns as against the Border Patrol. You have to have a healthy respect for the Border Patrol as well as, you know, talking about immigration issues. So. How do you think those issues, because that is obviously a huge issue in November, yeah. is affecting his campaign and his messaging? I think that, you know, without being disingenuous, he speaks about the issues in slightly different ways in each stop. So in Del Rio, which is another border town, he spoke at length about his respect for the people who work for the Border Patrol because it is such a significant amount of people. Um, you know, every stop he talked about the... Um, the horribleness of actually a family separation like that that message did not change but what he was clear about is that border towns where people you know communicate and and mix and flow that is part of what makes his hometown of El Paso one of the safest places in Texas. So he likes to talk about how, you know, the fact that you have people from Mexico coming in or from other countries, that doesn't necessarily make a place unsafe. It's just that you need to have you know, that the rules need to be in place and that respect needs to be there. Right. Uh, delicate line that he's walking there. I will say uh, one key theme that you kept coming back to in your piece was the idea of Texans telling you they didn't like being pigeonholed uh, politically or kind of culturally, right? And I'm wondering, from your time there and the people that you spoke to, what do you think the national media gets wrong about Texans? What would Texans say that the rest of the country just don't understand about them? You know, I think this is just a frustration with national reporting generally in red states, right? Or in blue states too, actually. Just calling them a red state or a blue state really papers over a lot of those complexities. So, you know, I talked to people who said like, I'm against gay marriage, I'm against abortion as birth control, this is their phrasing, but I also am not gonna vote for Ted Cruz and I, I'm here to listen to Beto. So, you know, that's the sort of profile that we don't often see but at the same time, I think, you know, not just seeking out those examples, but also realizing that there are a lot of, you know, things that challenge our understanding of what red state or blue state means. It's so important. Amen. And I saw my timeline was full of people, just full of praise for your piece yesterday, Anne Helen. So thank you very much for writing and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Now, uh, we should say we didn't forget about the president's tweets. Never. How could we? About uh, White House counsel Don McGahn. Chris Geidner is coming up uh, shortly to break that down for us. But up next, it's fire tweets. It's Monday. Better tweets. Let's do it. More tweets.
Welcome back. Uh, before the break, we asked what the worst outfits you've seen people wearing to weddings. Uh, and uh, Nichelle Stevens has a tweet here about Kim and Kanye's outfits, but she didn't wasn't too offended. She said, what I'm most offended by is that Kim and Kanye's greens don't match. Mint green and neon green. Yuck. Well, that's very specific. Uh, to focus on the color matching rather than the whole outfit itself, but that's fair enough. I, I don't know. Maybe it could look cool with not those specific colors, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I kind of like like if you are matching with your partner to do like one shade of one color and one shade of the other color. They're different greens, very different, but yeah, I like I like the thought that's going behind it. Could be a new look. Anyway, fine tweets. Ready, Let's ready do to it. Do this. Yeah. Yeah, you could have really. <laughs> Lucy Wild, eight when you order something and a confirmation email doesn't come through, point zero 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 one seconds later, like, have you stolen my money? Am I a victim of fraud? <laughs> yeah, I get that. You get that. It is Monday. We're gonna try and okay. I'm gonna try and up the energy here on the bush and put it. Here we go. Uh, boom. Ah, there we go. I didn't give the sound guys much time there. All this Pete Davidson coverage is a great reminder that being in your 20s is almost more embarrassing than being in your teens. And as someone who just turned 30, yeah, I'd agree with that. The 20s couple coverage is my life. Like 20s couples of the summer, like Haley and Justin, yes. uh, Sansa and Joe Jonas. And you know how there was that photo last week of her crying? That's right, yeah. So I sent it to my husband and he was like, oh my God, if we were famous in our 20s, there would be like pop Razzi photos of us like crying, no, like fighting you. on the subway. No, it would you. be really bad. No, so thank you. I'm glad I'm not famous. Amen. That's all I have to say. Okay. That was energy. The Law Boy. Plato returns from the dead. Plato, so who's that girl? Are you together? Me, nah, it's purely platonic. Plato, what does platonic mean? Me, it means we don't have sex. Plato, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I love a good, yeah, pun on a Monday morning involving I just don't know how people think of the ancient stuff, Greeks. Yeah. Especially over the weekend. That's good. All right, here we go. A bye gal, nine-year-old me. Wow, I love my public library. Yes, I'd like to check out 14 novels that are above my reading level. Be back next week. Me now. Wow, I love my public library. Yes, I would like to check out one. I believe it's called a book, bookie. I will be back in three to five business months. That, uh, I, look, we all love the library, but yeah, I would agree with that as well. I, I've tried really hard to do the New York Public Library and I have a library card, but like every time I go, it like doesn't work. Ugh. I just, I'm just. I read, I, I mean, I'm, I read on my phone, so anyway. But still yeah. love a library, anyway. I love libraries. <laughs> Lil Arab. Kind of fucked up the Friends theme song as someone telling you life sucks and then clapping at you with 1,000 hands before you can respond. Da, 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 da. Okay, I feel like I this person yeah. was having a little bit of a sad time. That's a sad time. I, I understand <laughs> that. All right, here we go. Tweet of the day. You ready for this? We're doing yeah. it together. Ah, there we go. Tweet of the day from Flora underscore Flora. Imagine having chills, then imagine those very chills multiplying. That's what life is like for John Travolta. You suggested this tweet. This it's really <laughs> funny. Flora, you are a clever, clever gal. Our producer was like, I don't get it. And I was like, Patrick, come on, sing the song. I now he gets chills. it, yeah. That's all you can sing for copyright reasons. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, the fun is over. Up next, we're talking about more tweets from Trump. We're going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district via NYC with BuzzFeed News legal ed editor Chris Geidner. Good morning, Chris. I hear you are not in the district. You are actually just I a am few not. Floors I am in us. this district. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing in New York, Chris? Oh, you know, just missed you all. So oh, you <laughs> crawled out of the swamp yeah, into our building. Back. <laughs> all right. Well, here's a tweet from our president. I'm going to try to do a dramatic reading. <laughs> The failing New York Times wrote a fake piece today implying that because White House counsel Don McGahn was giving hours of testimony to the special counsel, he must be a John Dean type, quote, rat. But I allowed him and all others to testify. I didn't have to. I have nothing to hide. Very, very dramatic there, Steph. Uh, <laughs> to which Seth Maskett replied, viewing John Dean as the villain in the Watergate story seems like kind of a tell. Mm, okay. Uh, Chris, what was revealed in the New York Times story? And can you also remind us who John Dean was? 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the 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 New York Times story over the weekend and they had a, a second story on Sunday was was really putting together a lot of stuff about what has been going on behind the scenes. Um, the 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 special counsel's investigation, the original plan of Trump's lawyers, John Dowd, who he originally had and and. We all remember Ty Cobb uh, with the the mustache in the White House. Um, what was this idea that they were cooperating and that they were going to give the special counsel's office what they could? Um, what ended up happening was that Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel, um, he he talked to the special counsel's office for a long time. Um, we knew that he had been speaking to the special counsel's office. We knew that Trump had allowed him to. Um, what what we had found out before was back when Michael Flynn had pleaded guilty, we knew that he had finished one day and was getting ready to do a second day. Uh, but they put that off after Michael Flynn pleaded guilty. And Apparently, now we, we learn from the New York Times that he did go back for that second day and apparently later went back for a third day. What we don't know is when that was. And that that question of when that third day was could be really important because if it was, if it was somewhat more recent, it could be a sign that the special counsel's office had sort of gone about their investigation and found something new that they wanted to bring him back to talk about, which would obviously be more significant than if they just had a whole bunch of stuff that they wanted to talk to him about. And so it took a long time. So what was the White House's strategy in letting Don McGahn speak to Mueller? Yeah, I mean, the strategy, in a sense, was they would probably lose if they fought it anyway. Um, the, the the White House counsel, they, they could have claimed executive privilege about things, but the president and John McGahn don't have the sort of attorney-client privilege that he has with his outside lawyers, that he would have with Rudy Giuliani, um, because the, the White House counsel's obligation is to the White House, not to the president as an in, in individual person. So the the odds are had they forced a subpoena uh, for to to get Don McGahn to testify, he would have had to testify. And so it, it's a little bit of of people pretending like they're playing more nice than they are when they say that like when when Trump tweets that he allowed Don McGahn to testify. Well, Don McGahn probably would have had to testify had he not allowed him to do so. Chris, can you remind us, as I said, can you remind us who John Dean was and why but why uh, Don McGahn feared being the, Don, uh, the John Dean of the Russian inquiry and what uh, President Trump thinks of John Dean now? I mean, John Dean was, was the, the, the person who ended up uh, providing information that was was used to to show what was going wrong, what uh, what the White House was trying to hide in Watergate, um, and the the idea that that Trump is sort of conflating circumstances in Watergate with with what's going on now, as as somebody said in a response to one of the tweets, like. Don, John Dean being the 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 bad guy uh, of Watergate is is sort of disturbing. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it, it it's also it just goes back to this idea that 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 Trump is is really focused on uh, how anything is going on, how he's perceiving it, how it's affecting him, right, and, and not how anybody outside of the White House or outside of him would would be seeing it. And it also shows that he's not really getting advice from anybody who's showing him how things are objectively being portrayed. And that gets back into this feedback loop of, of him uh, watching Fox News and finding out what what is going on via how Fox News is presenting it, which is trying to present it to him in a way that he will find appealing to himself. Right. <laughs> Does the White House know what McGahn would have told Mueller, or is this some sort of indication that maybe he told them things that the White House wouldn't be happy with, or are they just completely in the dark? 
Yeah, one of the one of the questions about the the New York Times stories over the the weekend is is I mean these are are all sort of background sources or unnamed sources, and it, it's not quite clear. Um, I I don't really buy the idea that the White House is completely caught off guard by by the fact that McGann was talking a lot. Um, that they they knew when he wasn't in the White House. It's not like the White House counsel can disappear for thirty hours and and not be known. Um, it, it it's clear that from from the New York Times reporting that he he talked about a broader range of topics. Maybe gave more details than. Uh, then McGann's lawyer, Bill Burke, apparently shared with, uh, I would imagine, Ty Cobb. And then Emmett Flood is the lawyer who took over in the White House counsel's office for, for Ty Cobb. Because what had happened was all of the, the original White House counsel's office people realized that they were going to be witnesses to any obstruction investigation. And so they sort of recused themselves from dealing with those issues. And that's why Ty Cobb came in and then Emmett Flood after him so that they would be able to provide advice to the president. And, and but via sort of the White House's interests are on those issues so that Don McGahn and other people in the White House counsel's office who knew they would be called as witnesses would be able to do so. Right. Well, speaking of the president's many, 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 many lawyers, as you just named <laughs> them there, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Rudy Giuliani said he doesn't want Trump to testify in the Mueller investigation because, quote, truth isn't truth. Now, Chris, you've spoken with Rudy several times before. What the hell is his strategy here? He sounds like <laughs> a philosophy 101 Yeah, it's student. very existential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he like he went on to Twitter this morning and sort of was like, I wasn't trying to make some, some metaphysical uh, commentary there. Um, I mean, I think what he was getting at was this idea that like Comey is saying one thing, Trump is saying another just because a person says something doesn't mean that it is true. And this this idea that they've been trying to push, which is they are going to be making the case, whether it's in a, a criminal case or just before the public or before a House committee or whatever, that they think Jim Comey is a liar. And so therefore, in the concern that they have is, and that Rudy has talked about before, is this idea that like, well, if if the special counsel's office counts Comey as telling the truth, then anything that Trump says or has said to people that contradicts that, they're going to say that that's a lie. But we say that Comey is lying and the Trump is telling the truth. And so it's this idea when he said truth isn't truth, that like, what the FBI is saying is truth, isn't the truth. But of course, I mean, what I said on Twitter yesterday to somebody is like, if it takes five minutes of some other lawyer explaining what it is that you meant by something, you probably didn't do a good job. <laughs> That's very true. Okay, we're That's gonna... what I tell my reporters too, when their leads are too long. <laughs> Yeah, too long. <laughs> We're going to complete our bingo square of Trump lawyers. Now let's move on to Michael Cohen. <laughs> Tweet from the New York Times. Michael Cohen, President Trump's ex-lawyer, is under investigation for bank fraud in excess of $20 million. Ooh, charges could come soon. So this isn't being handled by the special counsel's office. So what is the likelihood that Cohen makes a deal that impacts yeah. the Russia investigation? Um, wow, that that's a, a very specific question. Um, I I don't think we know yet. I think that that it's clear that that Michael Cohen has been taking a different tone uh, recently. It's clear that that he's got uh, he he he's got this real concern that he has some serious legal liability. Um, the big thing in the New York Times story last night was this idea that it is $20 million at issue, um, allegedly. And that that's 
that that's real money that that could be real consequences. And so I'm sure he's he's sitting down with his lawyers. Um, it looks like the investigation is is near its end and they're hoping to be able to make a decision on whether to file charges before before Labor Day. So we're we're really the, the clock is ticking. Amen. Um, we're gonna and they're they're we should hopefully uh it, it's hard to to say that we're gonna know when something's gonna happen, but it sounds like we should know what's going on with this part of the investigation uh by 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 Labor Day. Okay. Well we'll be watching. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm very impressed by your myriad of knowledge of all of Trump's legal counsels. Ex There's a lot. Future. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Up next, I speak with Ashley Fetters about fertility apps. Stay tuned. Here's a tweet from The Atlantic, Ashley Fetters. I can state with authority that you haven't lived until you've received six push notifications in a row all asking whether you got your period. Ashley, I can tell you're loving that tweet. That's a, a place to start. It, it's, one way, it's one way to introduce you to our audience. Of Whoa. course, we've had you on before to talk about Spice World. You know, yes. you know this is completely different, but completely just different. as important. So you wrote about how fertility apps exclude fathers. Yes. So first to start off, if you know people haven't entered this trying to conceive online world, what sort of fertility apps are out there and how are they helping people specifically conceive? Sure, um, so like last year, the Wall Street Journal estimated there are some, something like 100 fertility apps out there on you know, Android phones or on iPhone, um, all, all for smartphones that sort of um, apply algorithms and apply data to uh, the natural human ovulation cycle, um, just sort of predicting when you're ovulating, when you're fertile, um, so that when people are looking to conceive or looking to avoid getting pregnant, they can uh, enter all of their symptoms and sort of have the, the app take it from there in terms of predicting when their fertile window and when their periods are going to occur. So your piece though specifically focused on how all of these apps focus specifically on the experience of the woman and they do yeah. not really apply to the fathers at all. So can you talk about that a little bit? Of course. Well, first I wanna, I wanna make sure I say that like, most people who use fertility apps really like the experience. A lot of people, you know, have found success in conceiving or con uh, success in uh, contraception using these apps. A lot of people have no problem with the way they work uh, currently. But what I did start to notice when I had looked into uh, how these apps work is that most of them, like you said, are sort of uh, just geared toward the female experience. And just like they put all of the work of monitoring the, um, the ovulation cycle and the human symptoms of like ovulation and fertility on the woman in terms of they tend to be apps that are designed for one user and one user only. Only a few, uh, like Glow is one that I can think of and Clue has a, has a, a certain uh, feature that allows you to share with a partner to help them monitor while you monitor as well. Yeah, and that I guess plays into this problem that, you know, when it comes to these issues of birth control, contraception, fertility, yeah. it's all on the woman, right? Even birth control, yes. which definitely should not be all on the woman. A lot <laughs> no, of times I, in many relationships, unfortunately, it tends to be kind of a quote unquote woman's problem. And, yes. you know, when you're dealing with your body, obviously that extra stress, it would be nice to pass along yeah. some of that emotional energy to someone else. So what are some ways that men would like to be involved that the current apps maybe aren't letting them be involved. Sure, I, I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, like, you know, it is one person's body. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. Um, well, it's one person's body. It's two people, uh, you know, engaging in some, some fun activities, too. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. There's, there's components yeah. from there's both. Components Lots of, from, from yeah. people, that's true. Um, so one thing that I, I really got a kick out of was when I talked to, um, I guess it was Mike Wong, the founder of the app Glow. Um, he, you know, mentioned that when he and his wife were trying to conceive, um, they were, you know, having some challenges and found that, it was nice for him to know when his wife was ovulating because it, then it was like, oh, he could make a romantic dinner reservation. Or, you know, some women I've talked to are like, yeah, I would like for my husband, for my for my partner to know when to wear that shirt I think he looks really hot in. Or, you know, when, when he should pick up some wine for dinner, um, knowing that we're gonna have a romantic evening. Or just letting the man be in, or you know the secondary partner be involved in the process so it's not yeah. something you know you read about 
uh, women trying to conceive and how it just is such a burden on them being able to pass yes. off that burden yeah. to you know someone else I think you know really would be very important mm -hmm. so what are some of the uses for these apps besides trying to conceive for those sure. who might not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a great question. Um, several double as, uh, like I said, contraception um, tools. I mean, I don't I don't want to say it's a it's a perfect method of contraception. There's like a, there's room for human error if you're just going by um, you know algorithms or, or day yeah, counting. Yeah, don't use this as your only <laughs> birth control. That's what we should control. probably say. That's, that, that, <laughs> yeah. I think that, that'll end up in out. you yes. getting some parenting apps. <laughs> yes, that's, that's also true. That's a risk. Um, but certain people, yeah, they will they will use it to um, monitor when they should maybe use extra protection or maybe just, you know, alter the way they are engaging in sexual activities to make sure that they um, aren't getting pregnant when they want to, or when they don't want to get pregnant. Um, also, some people just use it for period tracking. Um, a lot of women just use it for you know, the algorithm that'll predict when you're going to get your period next, so you can just plan a little bit further out in advance. Yeah, and you know, there's no nothing wrong with a man being involved in that as well, because True. you know, we shouldn't have to take it all on alone. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> That's, I definitely think so. Well, Ashley, yeah. thank you so much. This of is a course. super interesting topic. We always love having you on. Thanks More so AM to DM is up next. Thirteen-year-old McKenna has become an internet sensation after clips from her ASMR YouTube channel called Life With Mac went viral. McKenna joins us now, just one day away from her first day of school. McKenna, good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited. One of my favorite parts of my job is getting to talk to people who are exploding online and you are blowing up. Your YouTube channel has more than 350,000 subscribers. How on earth did you get into Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, also known as ASMR, and you like to call these tingle response videos? I do. I don't really have a specific reason of why I created my YouTube channel, but whenever I did bad on like when my test, I always listened to ASMR and I was like, I want to try this out. And so I filmed my first ASMR video and this is where I am now. You are talking to us. Now, do you, do you personally experience ASMR? And to those of us who don't, how would you describe it? I do, I do experience it. Um, well, the, how I describe it is when my mom used to like rub my back or my friends used to like braid my hair, I'd get goosebumps and that's basically what ASMR gives people, but like through a screen, through technology, and yeah. It's it's huge online, there's a big community, and one of your most popular videos is one of you drinking from a seltzer water can uh, with yeah. a straw. And I love the one where you're also like rattling, yeah, there you are, rattling your fingernails. I'm doing it now on my mug for the sound guy, he loves it. Uh, Dan, <laughs> sound guy. I wanna know, how do you come up with ideas for your channel? Well, I, there's a lot of other ASMR channels on YouTube, so I kind of get an idea of how, like, what's what's new, what's popular. And my mom helps me out with all these new ideas, like eating crickets and eating spiders. What? Um, yeah, trying unique things. It's just kind of what I like to do. And it what gets, do crickets and spiders taste like? Oh, the crickets don't taste very bad, but. Spiders taste really bad. They're my biggest fear. <laughs> yeah, I would guess that spiders would not taste good. I yeah. want to look at some of these memes though. Ren, you tweeted out the seltzer video of McKenna with the caption, Romeo drinking the poison because he thought Juliet was dead. That's my favorite. And Sabola, you tweeted out this video of McKenna chewing saying, Ginny Weasley opening the Chamber of Secrets and getting everyone killed. Uh, when, when did you notice that you'd become a meme? Well, I didn't realize until a few days afterwards, um, we were, my mom was looking at Twitter and she found this meme of me. And then that's when the memes started like, more kept on coming and I find them hilarious. I like to look at them and find them really funny. Why do you think they're so popular? What is it about your, your reactions that you think are getting so, uh, so much heat online? I don't really know. I just, I never thought like all those memes would get so many views. Um, and they just keep on coming like each morning I see new memes. It's really, it's really cool. Do you have a favorite one so far? Um, I like, I think it's called watching people get karma they deserve. I thought that one was just funny because I'm just like drinking the seltzer water and just looking at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really funny. 
So, okay, as an, a as an ASMR creator, what are you hoping that people take away from your videos? Is it just the sensation that you're after? I don't know. Well, I started YouTube because I've always wanted to do YouTube, and Mac, Life with Mac, is my nickname. My real name is McKenna, as, as you know. And um, Mac stands for Meeting, Acceptance, and Kindness, and that's the main thing of my channel. I love doing ASMR, and I just want to spread the message that Meeting, Acceptance, and Kindness is the key to life, and I um, just want to send that mas message through all my social media platforms so everyone can understand. Well, that's, that is beautiful. We need more of that. And you mentioned your mom helping you uh, with ideas. Well, what do your parents think of your newfound fame? Well, I, when I first started, I had like 16 subscribers. My family thought ASMR was so weird. It's just, it is kind of weird for people who don't experience it. But since I do it so much, I'm like at the grocery store tapping on apples or something. They've just gotten used to it. Uh, McKenna, one last favor just before we go. Uh, do you have a can there or something that you can give me your trademark reaction with? We'll do it together. I do. Oh, I have this little perfume bottle that I just like, Kind of tap on. I love it. Look at us. I'm doing it for the microphone. Perfect. Ooh, I hear it. <laughs> Sounds so nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, McKenna, and good luck with, I get to say this, your first day of school tomorrow. Yeah. Good luck. Well, up next, Stephanie sits down with Katie Storino, the founder of Mega Babe. Stay tuned. from Lisa Ryan. At the point in thigh chafing season where I've given up on wearing weather appropriate clothes and I'm now seeking thigh relief through pants, which will lead to my death of heat stroke. Oh well, goodbye world. <laughs> that is definitely a mood and I am joined by someone who created a solution to this under discussed side effect of being a woman who, whose thighs touch, AKA most of us, all of us, Katie Strino, founder of Megabag and creator of the Plus Size Fashion Blog 12-ish. Katie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So yeah, the, the truth is out there, our thighs touch, we chafe. And you have created Mega Babe, which you say takes the ouch and ugh out of being a woman. So what inspired you to create a line of products for chafing for women? Something that we have been needing for so many years. I know. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about wearing pants as a solution is just not something that was realistic for me, especially in New York City in the 90 degree heat and humidity. Um, and about a year ago, I went and I tried to find something that wasn't for men or for athletes, but was just for a girl who's just trying to walk to work wearing a skirt in the summer and not have a fire start between her legs. And I found that there was nothing really out there on the market um, that was just made for us to wear. Um, and I wanted something that was going to be celebratory and um, empowering rather than feeling shameful or cheesy or just weird, right? I wanted a solution that women could really feel proud of. And not have it be discussed as some sort of problem or embarrassment. Yes. Yeah. It's just a part of being a woman. It's just... Right, exactly. So why do you think it's taken so long for someone like you to come along and invent something like this? Um, honestly, I think that the beauty industry t really does well on uh, tackling problems for women that are more cosmetic. Um, I also think that the beauty industry and the fashion industry are generally run by people who don't necessarily cater to a problem like this. This is why we're having such an explosion in the plus size clothing discussion because this problem of thigh chafe has been viewed as niche when in actuality it's, um, it's, it's a very widespread issue, right? It's probably something that people need more than a wrinkle cream or um, I don't, it, it's just those everyday products that were pitched all the time. This is actually something that makes a difference in your life. Plus I think what I'm learning when I've been studying female founded companies is so many of these products that we use every day for women are actually founded by men. Yeah, who exactly. Who don't know what it's like to be a woman, so how can they create a, pro a product? I took this product to different labs in different places and men told me um, that women, that this was a niche product, that this was not necessary for the market, and that unless you had some sort of anti-cellulite, anti-fat, something in there to shrink your leg size, women wouldn't care about buying it. 
So what did you say? <laughs> I was like, well, I'll take my business somewhere else because obviously they didn't, they didn't get it. And there are certainly people who still don't get it. And they think, oh, that's like a cute small business <laughs> product. But um, the fact that we launched last year and we sold out, um, we sold out three times out of product for our thigh rescue and for our bust us, which is for under boob sweat. Um, and then um, we are now nationwide in every Ulta online. Um, we're in Select J Cruise on jcrew.com. Uh, we we were on QVC. I mean, obviously retailers get that this is not a small thing and this is a big opportunity. So who was it eventually who you were able to sell the product to that gave you the answer you were looking for as opposed to just this constant kind of negative rejections? Um, well, we found we found a manufacturer that was able who like got it and was able to take it on and make what we wanted um, and stores like either stores get it or they don't get it it's same thing with media media gets it or they're like this isn't something that I have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm curious what the response has been you said that so many people you took this to didn't think it was something that people needed so what have some of the responses been from people who did need it who now have it it's life-saving, literally life-saving. I mean, I get direct messages from women on the 12-ish style all day long that are like, you saved my vacation, you saved my honeymoon, I'm able to walk to work, I wore dresses for the first time in 10 years because of your product, I'm not chafing, um, I feel confident. Like, because isn't that what it is, essentially? It's giving you confidence because you're comfortable. Like, no one is walking around stuffing their dress in between their legs trying to stop the rubbing. That That's not making you feel confident or comfortable. You're feeling like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. Why don't I have a thigh gap? Why is this happening to me? Because no one talks about it. So women are made to feel like this is an isolated issue and that, and that they don't have what the media is putting out there. I've been really interested in the conversation surrounding how so many brands are and companies are jumping on this kind of body positivity bandwagon, right? right. They've realized it's not cool to make us all feel bad about ourselves <laughs> anymore. Now they're trying to be body positive right. while still just trying to sell us stuff. Yes. So you're coming on the market with this revolutionary product. How has it been for you entering this landscape with all these other companies trying to be like, oh, actually, we care about plus-size women now. <laughs> we'll take your money. We'll take your business. Exactly. Um, it's really interesting because some companies are really, they're really killing it. They're, they're hitting it out of the park, and they're doing it right, and others are struggling. Um, I think one of the main issues is that they forget to take a, they forget to have the customer experience all the way through. And so I think that there's like an attempt to want to do something to be PC about it, but um, they don't have the actual experience for that, for that shopper planned out from start to finish. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. Yeah, like they're gonna launch like, a, they'll launch like a, a special top in large sizes, but then there are no pants to wear with the top, right? So you can go get the top now, but like there's no outfit. There's, it's like um, very segmented. Right. You obviously built your brand on Instagram. Uh, it's a platform that I personally struggle with. I think a lot of women struggle with because there's certain people I can't follow because they just make me feel bad about myself. Totally. Right? Yeah. So you do the series where you I get, uh, do a photo series where you have like a model, like Gigi Hadid on one side, yeah. and then you, I guess, I don't want to say Super imitate. Supersize the look. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Supersize the look, which I don't find to be offensive. I think it's cheeky and fun and, and just making light of a bit of the size situation. Um, and you look great in all of these Thank you very much. Thank you. But I'm, I do that so that I can tell, I can show women of any size that um, they can pull off any outfit that they want to. They just have to have the confidence to do it. Because so many women, even last night I did a post on white jeans and um, white jeans are something I find, so, do you wear white jeans? I don't think I look good in white jeans, but I, I mean, maybe, maybe I could try. Yeah, that's the whole thing is that I think so many women talk themselves out of things through like, you have to be X, Y, or Z to wear something. And I'm just here to show you that you don't. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you definitely showed me that in your post for sure. <laughs> you looked amazing in all of them. And Thank I feel you. like 
And you know, you see like Gigi wearing something. Who I yeah. love Gigi, all respect. But you think I could never wear something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yes, I know. And that's what we're. That's the continuous message that we're being pushed is that this is for this person. It's not for. It's not for you. You also started the Make My Size hashtag. I didn't saw you talking with Alice and Olivia in your Instagram comments the other day. Um, what is one designer, who is one designer that you want to see expand? And why do you think so many designers are, I think they're cutting themselves off, they're cutting their own foot off because they have this customer base who loves their designs, but they refuse to cater to them. I, I like to say, do you hate money? Because <laughs> yes, it's an investment and yes, it's a, it's a, it certainly is um, a big undertaking to, basically double your your size offerings but i think that you would find that the amount of customers that you bring in in the long run is is really impactful on the business well also when you go to most stores and you know i'm on a budget i'm always in the style yeah. i'm always in the sales section i love a good <laughs> bargain obviously the double zeros are there's so many on the sales section. Right. So you figure if you're making so much for this population who, obviously there are some people who are double zero, yeah. but I don't know a ton of people who are double zero. I know more people who are, you know, a 10, a 12, a 14 going up and up. So if you're willing to cater to this population, yes. why are you not willing to cater to this population? Exactly. And I know this has been a frustration my entire life. And it's actually a, one of the reasons I started the 12-ish style because shopping for me is not an experience of walking into a store and picking what I want. It's a hack. Um, it's really a hack situation of can I can I squeeze this over my head and could I get this let out? And, and I'm... I'm so I call it the 12-ish because I fluctuated in weight and I'm a size 16. Um, and I would say that like 95% of the stores in New York don't carry a 16 in store. Um, so that's a huge frustration. And even when I was a 12 shopping was really just like a game of what can I kind of make work into my wardrobe versus I can choose from anything that they have on the shelves. Yeah, and with this hashtag and the work that you're doing, I'm hoping that you know, little girls like me, when I was younger, like you, won't yeah. be crying in dressing rooms because I can't find something to fit them. Right, Katie, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for talking about everything. These are important issues. When we come back, David and I are responding to your tweets. Welcome back. I love that chat that you just had. That was beautiful. Thank you. She's very inspiring. I think, yeah. you know, I kind of said that at the end, but you know, I struggled with my weight when I was younger and I always had to deal with these kind of issues when I was young and even still now to this day. And just seeing that maybe things would be different in the future. Yeah. It's very inspiring. Beautiful. Nice to people out there working to make a difference. Well, we asked about the worst outfits you've ever seen at a wedding, inspired by Kim and Kanye. And Dee Min said, A girl I knew from high school and am Facebook friends with posted photos of her son's wedding. The bride wore a sheer baby doll dress that I swear looked like underwear, scuffed cowboy boots, a straw hat, and camouflage garters. And arrived on a horseback. Holy moly. Thank you so much for sending us this tweet. This brings me so much joy. It's it a visual. brings me a lot of joy knowing, hearing David read that in his Australian Ooh. accent was very, camouflage garters. Right. <laughs> that was English. It's too good. That was so that's, good. Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Here's a picture from Saber Breaker. Making sure to keep up with Anne's DM on my staycation. Oh, thanks. Much more relaxing than listening at my desk in the office. Well, well, we're so glad you're still watching, even though it's um, the second tier B-lister here <laughs> and you're on vacation. Hey, That's really sweet. We're doing an A-list job, but I will say, we're on his giant screen TV there. This, I, I feel like this show is made to be watched on a phone. I don't know if my complexion does well on a giant TV, but thank you. We I don't ever want to see myself. Yeah, please there. don't do that. Thank you anyway <laughs> to our guests this morning, Anne Helen Peterson, Chris Geidner, McKenna, of course, Ashley Fetters, and Katie Storino for joining us. I stand McKenna, and later so this cute. week, Estelle and Terrence J are here. Very exciting. And we will be back tomorrow. We'll They're be letting back. us do it again. We're They're letting us do anywhere. another run at it. Yeah, for some reason. Anyway, bye. Bye.